Hey guys, I just want to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for following us on this journey and for listening to us each and every week. If you enjoy the content of our show, please be sure to head out to our Patreon site, and that's patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L, and you can become a patron there and help support what we do. And of course, we always want to give a shout out to Jonathan Lambert, who is one of our biggest patrons, And but all of our patrons, we really want to give a shout out and thank them as well. Now sit back and get ready to enjoy another episode of Mentors for Military. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. On this episode, we're joined by, or I'm joined by Scott Johnson and Paul Martinez, and we have a very special guest, Jennifer Marshall. Now, Jennifer, everybody knows you from the popular uh, hit series, at least uh, Netflix original, Stranger Things. Um, And of course, you've been on CBS Hawaii Five O, NBC's Timeless, and many others and everything. But I think most people follow the Stranger Things series, and that's what they know you mainly from. So first, you know, welcome to the podcast, but... I think we'd love to dive into that whole acting side of it and the the two-sided world that everybody loves to talk about. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me. And I would say that although civilians probably know me from Stranger Things, vets know me from being a vet. So uh, it's weird how those two worlds collided. Isn't it, though? Well, I actually was talking to Paul about this before we jumped on the show about like Hawaii Five-0. It's supposed to be a former Navy SEAL commander or maybe still in active duty. I'm not quite sure. How weird was it for you being a former vet, especially Navy, being on that show? No, it was really great. Um, That show was so amazing because uh, Ron Underwood, who directed the episode, he was basically like, okay, Jennifer, so tell me, you know, what you think about this. Are there any corrections? And, you know, there was something that was very small in the script Uh, instead of calling Instead of calling him SO2, I said, well, you know, he is an SO2. He's a special operator second class, but I would probably call him petty officer um, just because that's how we, if it was, if I was Navy, I would call him by his rate. But since I'm Air Force, I would probably call him by his rank. And the script supervisor said, well, let, let me see what I can do about that. And Ron said, no, Jennifer's a subject matter expert. If this is what she says, this is what we're going to go with. So I just thought it was so amazing how everybody understood that I was military and and worked with me. And Peter Lenkoff, who's the executive producer, has done just a phenomenal job in casting veterans in in particular roles and, um, you know, green lighting that casting. And it means a lot. It means a lot that a showrunner would see the value and that casting would see the value in bringing in a veteran to play a military role. I agree. I think the one thing that drives me absolutely crazy is when they don't have somebody on set that can give that kind of guidance because, you know, they're wearing the braid. It hasn't been, the liner hasn't been taken out. It looks like a chef's hat. You know, their, their ribbons are all wrong. You know, everything is all wonky. I just never understood that. I mean, how hard is it to throw a rock and hit a veteran nowadays? I mean, you could probably, (laughs) you should be able to find one on set. Well, and especially, you know, for Hawaii Five-0, there were several veterans. So the the person that put my uniform together was uh, an Army reservist who now works in costumes in Burbank. He made sure that everything was accurate. You know, we had uh, an advisor on set who was Air Force for that particular scene. They also had an advisor who was a Navy SEAL. So. I think that that's great when they understand the value that we bring and they want to do it right. Because let's be real, veterans and service members, we are the loudest people on social media when something is not right. Yes. We love to eat our own. Yeah. Yes, we do. So why not make the effort, especially in a scene like that? And that's what I loved so much about the show was they understood that the scene meant a lot. And for those who haven't seen the episode, I play a joint mortuary affairs officer who is accompanying an airman who was killed in Afghanistan. And I'm meeting the body and overseeing the transfer of the casket and that scene means so much and it brings the ultimate sacrifice home to people who maybe aren't associated with the military who don't know you know it's one percent of the population so to bring that home and make it alive yeah for the audience it really meant a lot to me to to be cast in that role oh yeah got 
I could definitely see the importance of that. Not just um, that, but I mean, since we don't see those types of things on everyday television, I mean, at one point, that was something that you would see is when, you know, the, the, you know, the individuals came home and everything and the whole ceremony, that's less and less nowadays. You don't even hear that unless it's somebody within your local community and your local news or something where it's portrayed there. But for the most part, people don't see those things. So when you portray them within a setting like that, you want to get a right. It's really oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and what bothers me is it ends up being like other another person's war, other people's wars. Oh, those people are killed abroad. That's somebody else that really doesn't affect me. So for Hawaii Five-0 to say, no, we're going to portray this, we're going to do this right, because it is kind of a microcosm of a lot of the other deaths that have occurred overseas. So it just meant so much that that they said, we're going to do this right. And as a result, it was one of the highest rated episodes in the series history. And wow. it was that particular scene was retweeted and shared, you know, thousands of times because it resonated with people. And I'm, I'm, I'm just so grateful that it did. I can totally see where all of a sudden your agent calls you up and says, Jennifer, we've got a hard press duty for you. You've got to go to Hawaii in order to perform <laughs> this role. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because he sent me the sides, which is the part of the script that we auditioned with. He sent it to me the night before. And I was out with a friend of mine, uh, Michael Schlitz, who's an ambassador for the Gary Sinise Foundation. Um, and I was out with him and I said, you know, I really can't cancel my dinner with Mike, but this is important. So I kept my dinner with Mike. I hadn't seen him in about a year. Went home, hit the sides pretty hard. My audition was at 930 the next morning. And I knew that there were a lot of things in that audition a civilian actor wouldn't get. There was like the slow salute. There was yelling of commands. So I knew that I kind of had you know, a benefit going into the audition. So when he called me and he said, you're ready to go to Hawaii, I was happy, but I, I wasn't surprised because it was a difficult, difficult audition. And of course, what do you say when somebody says ready to go to Hawaii, especially since <laughs> they fly you first class? Like, what? yes, please. First class? Yeah, they do. Yeah, wow. first class. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jennifer That's the only was... time I fly first class is when work provides it. <laughs> She's a big deal. It's not, not like us flying coach. Yeah, for sure. Well, if you go over to Hawaii, though, you definitely want to fly first class because that's where you get the free Mai Tais and the whole bed. You got to get ready for the whole ambiance, right? The whole setting. You know, it was great. On the way there, um, they pulled us off the flight because there was something wrong with the radio. So they were kind of scrambling for an airplane. And so they put us on this really old airplane. It was so old that they didn't have screens in first class. So I brought a book because I love to read. But for people who did not bring a book, there's no Wi-Fi. There's no screens. It was a very long flight for some people, and some people looked miserable. <laughs> <laughs> it was like flying like 20 years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah, I can't imagine. Now, prop playing would have been worse, though, because, you know, flying over the ocean in a prop. Yeah. I don't know that I could have done that back in the day, to be honest with you. No, me neither. I'll pass. <laughs> if he'd sitting in the cargo nets for uh, 10 hours. Well, that's Ugh. true. Yeah. At least you can get, uh, get up and lay down and then get in your sleeping bag. How did you get on Stranger Things? How did that come about then? So my agent had sent me a breakdown, which is basically just um, shows what the roles are. And it said that they were casting for the mother of Max, played by Sadie Sink. And I was a fan of Sadie's work. She was on a show called American Odyssey. And I remember telling my husband, this actress, this child, at the time, child actress is so talented. She's just amazing. So when they sent it to me, I, I kind of chuckled because I was like, wow, Sadie and I look yeah, very, very similar. Yeah. yeah. So I think the only difference is she has blue eyes and I have green eyes, which is almost imperceptible on camera. So I knew that if I submitted a somewhat decent audition, I would have a chance based off of just how we looked. So I submitted the audition and the audition scene was where Billy and my husband are fighting. And so it's a lot of reactions. There's not a lot of lines there. It's a lot of reactions. And so my husband was filming the audition at home because we shoot in Atlanta. So he was basically like banging things and pretending he's Billy and pretending he's Neil and pushing things and slapping the side. It was just insane. I didn't the, know that you way. filmed that here in Atlanta. Yes. Stranger Things is filmed in Atlanta. Get out. No. So I was filming my audition from Los Angeles and my husband's just the best. I mean, he's willing to just do whatever, and it, it, it was great. So then they called, and they said, we want to pin you, which basically means they're looking at a few people, and executive producers will come back and say who they want to book. And I was happy. I didn't understand the extent of it until after it aired. Yeah. Like, I knew, oh, I shot Stranger Things. This is cool. I couldn't tell anybody. But I, I knew it was cool. I was a huge fan of the first season, but I didn't know the extent of it until the next morning. I woke up to 
ding, 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 ding. People had stayed up all night and binged it. And I woke up to spoiler alerts. <laughs> like, Bob died. I'm like, no, don't do <laughs> We don't know because we don't get full script. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize the magnitude of it until the few days after that. I had to turn off my phone because it got, it got crazy in the best way. You couldn't be the advisor for Billy's mullet, though? I just uh, I couldn't handle it. <laughs> you know, when I first met Dacre, who plays Billy... Um, yeah, I met him in the hair and makeup trailer while he was getting his mullet glued on. So, I mean, <laughs> it looked like it was glued on the first time he came out. It was like, wait, that's gotta be a hair piece or something. It just didn't look right on his head. And then I find out later with uh, later that he's Australian as well. Right. Yes. Yes. And I think his mullet's amazing. I'm just like, oh, <laughs> it takes me back to the eighties. Um, he's Australian. So Dacre on set, this is so difficult for me because I'm not one to do accents. That's not really my jam. And he will speak to all of us in his Australian accent. And then the minute that the cameras are on, boom, it's American accent, which I've worked with. Um, I had a small role in a Daniel Radcliffe movie and he's British, of course. And so he would stick to an American accent all day, which is what I would have to do because I can't transition in and out like that. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure Daniel can, cause his American accent's great too, but yeah, it's, it's a weird part of the brain that you just have to yeah, no doubt about well, it. I, I, and it's funny how these different actors and actresses can do that because the young girl, I can't remember her character's name. I'm going to mess this up on Stranger Things, but the one that actually is kind of the main character who... Millie, deals, she plays yeah. Eleven. And so she's English, right? And mm -hmm. uh, and you'd never know it. And you know the way they're able to pull that off is pretty cool. Definitely. And I think it's more common with British actors, yeah. I mean, British and Aussies who can kind of flip into American accents. I know it's, it's difficult for me. I've done British accent a few times. I can do Southern because I lived in the South forever. I haven't done Australian. I've done Irish, but it's, it's definitely a skill. And if you're not used to that, you just kind of sound like this horrible, I, I've seen, I've heard bad accents. It's not great. <laughs> We've got to see Scott and his mullet though. Scott, I know you had one. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the best example of um, a bad accent is uh, Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. Oh, uh, you know, have you heard? Dick's uh, Cockney accent is outstanding. Yeah, it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it in so many years. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Actually, the second one is not as great either because uh, I think he um, comes yeah. on there. Yeah, he has a little uh, role here at the end of the, the movie. And uh, yeah, it's... As he got older, he didn't perfect it either, Scott, unfortunately. <laughs> That's why That's I generally just don't offer accents because I know it's going to be poor, so I just don't. Yeah, it's probably mm -hmm. best. I, but I want to jump to now. You mentioned about being a veteran, so let's go into that because you came right out of high school and joined the Navy at 17, 17 years old, right? I did, five weeks after graduation. So you already had a date scheduled. You went into the late entry program type of thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I believe when I turned 17, I I had said I want to go down and fill out my paperwork. And my parents were like, nope, 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 nope. And I said, no, but I have to go because I have to, you know, I have to choose my job. And if I don't choose my job, it's I'm going to get some horrible jobs. So please just sign the paperwork. I won't enlist. And my mom's like, okay, as long as you don't enlist. And I came home and I was like, yes, I'm leaving. And they were like, get out. And I was like, all right. <laughs> I will. And I did. Did you really? Wow. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Wow. So what was the what was it that attracted you to the Navy then? The recruiter called me first. Is that all <laughs> yeah. it took? I mean, well, listen, I love the Navy. Yeah. I can't say enough good things about the Navy, but it literally was which recruiter will take me away from this small town the fastest. Yeah. Like, and I remember he called me and he was like, Jennifer, let me tell you. And he's trying to pitch me. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't need to pitch me. Like I'm a sure thing. He's like, yes, yeah, so let me tell you. I'm like, no, we're good. Can we just go? Okay. So let, we really don't need to talk about this. Let's just go to maps right now and just enlist. Wow. All those years I spent in recruiting well, it never was that easy. I'm telling you. <laughs> I think he, I don't know if he thought it was candid camera or what. Like, he probably no. did. He's like, no, this cannot be happening right now. I mean, Scott well, got tricked into the whole thing when he went down there. Uh, he, he went down with a friend. Next thing you know, his friend backed out and Scott ends up in the army. I just went for the day out. Next thing I know, I'm on the train. I'm off. It's a hell of a day, man. Yeah. And my friend didn't even go. That's wow. pretty bad. I can't believe that guy ever did that to you, uh, Scott. That, that's just terrible. 
So you served on the USS Theodore Roosevelt, right? And what I'd like to talk about now is that you actually, during that time frame, served on the Sexual Assault Victim Intervention Program. And a lot of people don't know how prevalent or um, how much people actually are sexually, you know, have sexual trauma within the military. As a matter of fact, it's called military sexual trauma, but in some cases it's diagnosed as post-traumatic stress. And um, it's a it's a very important thing. It happens not only to the female side of it, it happens to men as well. It does. Yes. So I served as a sexual assault, assault victim intervention advocate on the Roosevelt. I had checked into my command and I wanted something where I could make a difference. And so I taught in the school to ship program. So when you first get on board, you go through three to five days of training to kind of see what the ship is like, what it, what it's about, you know, procedures, protocols. And so I basically taught the class about savvy, what it is, where you can reach out for help. And we also talked about what was expected. And that was really empowering to me because I didn't want anybody to come on board and say, oh, well, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. No, you were taught this in school to ship and you were taught what was appropriate behavior and how to respect boundaries and how you would be held accountable and that you would be held accountable. So I really, really enjoyed my time in that program. And you know, it's important to note that the military has cleaned up its act a lot. But when I was serving, um, I know numerous people who were processed out of the military under a personality disorder, which was basically, I am reporting my sexual assault, the command is trying to cover it up because it makes the leadership, quote unquote, look bad. And so the fastest way to clean it up is just to tell the, the, the victim you have a personality disorder and you are not compatible with military service and goodbye. So it's gotten a lot better. Um, but you know, for years it was really, really reprehensible behavior. And I would tell people who've gone through this sort of thing, if your command is not listening and if your command is not on board with you turning in somebody who did something horrible, you need to go outside of your command because yeah. it's just, it's not acceptable under any circumstances. I hear that. Dirty little words are things that we don't talk about openly enough. Uh, that ha happens more often. And like you said, some people just decide they don't want to take on the command or the command tells them to put it underneath the rug or, you know, be quiet about it or something of that nature. But uh, when somebody comes forward, um, that's where, you know, it really starts helping ease the pain of others. Absolutely. And I know, you know, I went through an MST in 2001. And uh, for me, I went from being junior sailor of the quarter to that woman. Wow. To literally that woman. And my chain of command, for the most part, was not supportive. I had one senior chief who was very supportive that I still talk to this day. We still text and we're trying to set up a, a lunch meeting um, because he still lives in California. And I probably haven't seen him since I left the command since I was 20, so almost 20 years ago. Um, so it's so important for me. I never wanted to be defined by that. It was something that happened in my career. I don't believe it was indicative of the entire military. It was indicative of one um, horrible person and one very cruddy chain of command. Was it a problem in the military? Yes. Was every command like that? No. So I refused to say I am this victim and this defines me. This is something that happened to me and it's something that made me a very strong person. Um, but at the same time, I learned from it, I grew from it, and now I'm able to advocate on behalf of others. There are a lot of people who have come into that type of situation and, and they're not trying to play the victim card yet. People actually perceive that's what they're trying to do. And like in your right. case, they make these assumptions and start putting them within a certain place. Um, I think it's, it's kind of sad and um, all branches deal with it. I think there are some where it seems to happen a lot more frequently and it might just be of the ratio in some cases there of uh, men to women or whatever the case may be. I don't know. And, you know, I want to speak to that because I think that everybody has a right to be a victim for a certain amount of time while you process your grief. Um, being a victim years out rather than a survivor, I don't think is beneficial to you because then you allow your perpetrator to control your life. So once you're past that period of grieving, you move on into being a survivor and hopefully advocating on behalf of others. And as far as, you know, male soldiers and sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardmen, some males, and this goes for female or male victims of MST, you know, if you see something going on in your command, if you see toxic leadership, if you see um, other service members treating, um, you know, female service members like garbage, talking down to them, um, talking about, you know, their escapades and, and taking advantage of somebody when they're drunk, like don't tolerate that because, it's that sort of culture that allows that to happen. But if men can stand up in their unit and say, and, and, and women and just say, this isn't going to be tolerated and we're not going to allow this, 
then you kind of change the culture. And that's really what you need is a culture change where no is not if somebody's vigorously saying no and pushing you off. No is anything. If somebody is inebriated, that's no. If somebody is like, oh, okay, maybe that's no. Anything other than yes, let's do this. Let's get down is a no. And until we get to that culture change, this is going to continue to happen. So we're getting there, but it, it's not over. It's not an overnight process. Yeah. Well, if you're in combat arms, it's I think, you know, you're always used to at least up to a few years ago being around males all the time. Uh, it's very testosterone driven. And then you get into the conventional side of it. And like me, when I first started working for a, a, a female officer and a female enlisted, it was very different. It was a it was a bit of a shock to me. I. I I had to like find my way because I was so used to carrying myself and, and talking and communicating in a particular way. It's a it's quite an adjustment, you know, especially within the military and, and the time period in the era that I was in. And, and to make that adjustment, like I said, it was uh, challenging. So that's not an excuse, mind you, but I think it's it's one of those things to have the education, the training. It's so important to have that and to help people understand that that's not acceptable, you know, and, and what is. Definitely. And, you know, when I was in and I was on the ship, it can be definitely a, a, a boy's world. You know, it's probably 10% women on the ship, 12% women. And I'm not somebody who's offended easily. I don't get quote unquote butthurt. I'm not politically correct. You know, I think we can joke about things and laugh about things, but I think that we definitely need to understand what's appropriate con conduct and what's not. And when you're violating the personal space or body of another person, that's definitely not okay. I can take a joke just like the rest of them and probably throw out some jokes that are not, you know, the most appropriate. But I just think that uh, some people tend to take that sort of environment as an excuse or an invitation to act in other ways that are definitely not appropriate. Yeah, I totally agree. Scott, is this something that is, uh, you know, prevalent over there within the UK? Is it something that you guys are also dealing with a lot? Not so much when I was in that it was a thing. And I, I wonder whether, is your military governed solely by military law? Or if somebody who was a victim, for example, went to a civilian police and reported it, would it get dealt with the civilians or just referred back to the military? Both. Yeah. Both, yes. Both. Yeah, it's both. Okay. You're subject to both. Right. Uniform Code of Military Justice is what we're governed by uh, within the military. But then on the civilian side, you're, you could be prosecuted just as easily in your local community or state, whatever the case may be, you know, type of thing yeah so okay. it's a, i mean it, it, it wasn't really a, anything that i was aware of when i served and i left for 14 15 years ago now so it's uh, it was a while ago and within the royal engineers when i was serving it was around the time that females were allowed to serve within the royal engineers so we we had small numbers coming in my regiment had uh, one sapper um, and support staff were um, had females as well. So probably out of 450 um, on, on the camp, there was maybe 20, 25. Um, so there wasn't a huge amount of, um, of females, but it wasn't something that really came across and that, or certainly that I heard of. So um, the military is almost archaic. In a, in a lot of its ways, you know, and when it comes to what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, sexuality, um, racism, the boundaries can be pushed a lot further than anywhere in Civvy Street would be tolerated. And whether that's right or wrong, I think people get forced to accept something that they wouldn't accept outside of the military. You know, and people should be able to, to stand up to that a lot easier than they probably would be allowed to within the military. I think you raise a good point, Scott. And I think that that's why all this training is so important and why it's so important to have advocates. Because we don't all join the military and we're not all on the same page. So we show up there and certain people may not know how to act. And I think that the composition of the military is changing so much. I mean, it was completely a boys club. 20 years ago mm -hmm. and you know 30 years ago women couldn't do so much in the military so that's a very small voice if that if that person becomes a victim of an assault 20 years ago or 30 years ago so i think that's part of the reason why we see these numbers increasing or we, we see the increased awareness of it you know that voice that, that's more typically victimized is becoming louder and it's a greater number in within our force too
I think it's happening as well out in the private sector. I think everybody's having to deal with different changes of roles that women, uh, you know, take, you know, within uh, the business community and everything. And I know that I work for uh, a particular company in a in an industry in which it's now almost dominated by women. And uh, whereas other industries may not be. So when a woman enters into that type of industry, they're going to see um, some of the more old school setback ways of how things are governed or done at per se within that community. Whereas if they shift into a totally different uh, occupation in a different industry, they may see something else. So I think we're both experiencing and going through that as the, uh, the gender roles start changing, um, as you know, we start breaking down all these different types of barriers, whether it's military or civilian, um, I, I think people are going to have to start being more aware of what they're saying, what they're doing, and those types of things. And I think it's important for women especially to know their value and what they bring to the table. Um, what I see a lot is you know, in my industry and other industries is women asking for permission. And I don't ask for permission. I just say, you know, this is how it's going to go. Does anybody have any input? And I think it's super important to know your strengths, what you bring to the table, and just go off of that. Because I, you know, people who know me will say, "I, I just don't take shit from anybody. I just don't. Because at the end of the day, I know who I am. I have good self-esteem. I know what I bring to the table. I know that I'm an asset. And if somebody does not want to work with me, I totally understand. And that is absolutely their prerogative. But I refuse to go into any situation and say, um, do you mind? I was wondering if, um, it would it be okay if, because then I'm just undermining, uh, undermining who I am as a person and what I bring. Don't you wish sometimes we could go have uh, interviews that are blind interviews so that we couldn't actually see the other person? I mean, you think of like the show The Voice and everything. Uh, it's so different than, say, other television shows, which are um, similar in format, you know, but, uh, you know, trying to find the perfect star. But yet The Voice never does see the individual until they actually select the button and say, OK, I like this person. I want to I want to you know, be the, the person to train them or coach them or something of that nature. It would be really cool, I think, in some ways, if we did this and work. We let our resume go out there and do that. But the minute we bring them into the interview process, we do it via Skype. We do it, you know, through some means where we can actually see them in many cases, although we're getting a little bit better at that, uh, if, especially if they're going to be a remote worker from where the, the office is going to be at. But we still size them up and put them in a particular mold or whatever the case may be once they see them. Right. It's human Absolutely. nature. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My husband was applying for, he works in HR, which is, this is so ironic. Oh, then you know Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) He he was applying for jobs in HR and his first name is Juan. So he had Juan in his last name and he wasn't getting a lot of bites. And then he put, he said, I'm just going to change it and put John and his last name is still Hispanic, but he was sending it out and he got more bites. And I was like, what? I don't understand because we had gone off of something else. It was this guy named Jose who had changed his name to Joe and it was an article I read. And so I said, well, why don't you just do this? And we didn't really think that it would make a difference. We were like, oh yeah, but it ended up making a difference. And so then when he got his first job um, under that name on the resume, he had to say, oh no, my name is Juan. I just, that was an old, like he had to try to explain it away. (laughs) Like, no, just call me Juan. (laughs) And they're like, but your name's John on your resume. He's like, well, yeah, but that's because that's the English portion of like the the English, what the English would be for Juan. So he, he tried to explain it. And that was not what we expected. We expected to have the same results and it just didn't work out that way. Well, how was your transition from the military then? I mean, because you coming off of active service and, you know, you've got this experience within the military and logistics and the whole bit. Did you find the same kind of challenge when you came out of trying to communicate and learn the new ways out here in the private sector? Oh, it was so hard. That's why I always talk to veterans about transition. Um, there's an organization that I, I do run Ranger Run every year for mm-hmm. Gallant Few. And Gallant Few is an amazing organization because it helps veterans with their transition because transitioning is so difficult. And I always try to explain to civilians, you know, we learn how to be soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, Coast Guardsmen over two to three months, depending on the branch. You're expected to transition into a civilian for five days of tra- transition assistance, five days. And for a lot of people, they go into the military at 17. 
They may not have another job. They've certainly never paid rent before at that age. And all of a sudden you're a civilian. Boom, there you go. So for me, I was very fortunate because my husband and I got married uh, pretty much as soon as I had left the Navy. So I had, you know, built in health care through the military. I didn't right. have to go to the VA, which causes a ton of problems for people going to the VA sometimes, depending on where your VA is. Yep. And, you know, thankfully they had a student, student veteran services officer at my college because when I went to go to college, I had no idea what is a credit hour, what is an associate's, what's the difference between an associate's and a bachelor's and, you know, a degree in the arts, a degree in the sciences. I had no idea because I'd never intended on going to college. I didn't think that I was cut out for college. So you have to, as a vet, I know we're always, we don't want to reach out to this person and we don't want to look weak and we don't, you just have to humble yourself and reach out because if that's not your area of expertise, that's fine. It's somebody else's area of expertise. And if you have people who are going to help you, take that help and just be grateful for it. Don't think I'm too good for this, or I should know this, or I should know that. Because we don't look at a civilian and say, well, you should know, you know, your general orders, or you should, that's insanity. So the fact that we would think, oh, civilians expect us to know A, B, and C. Well, how would you if you've never been in that predicament? Yeah, no, I and I think it's a topic that we've talked about quite often on this show about transition assistance program and your whole transition piece. I mean, it's not something you should just try to think you're going to learn from in five days. You need to give yourself enough runway. We've talked about having enough time post-military service to decompress, to actually find out who you are, find your pers- purpose and passion. Um, and I mean, these are things that you're very familiar with through your husband and stuff and his occupation, because it's a very challenging thing to walk out of military service, learn that new language, learn what people are looking, try to explain how you're going to add value to an organization by using your military experience. This is all foreign to you. You know, it's very, it's very difficult. And I would say those veterans who have successfully transitioned and are in higher levels of whatever field you're in, put on your LinkedIn profile that you are willing to be a mentor for a vet getting out. Ah, If you are a civilian and you, you know, civilians say all the time, thank you for your service. I appreciate that. I don't need to be thanked. I appreciate that. But I always say, let me, let me give you some tangible ways that you can help veterans that you really can thank them for their service. And a lot of times I will tell civilians, you know, if you work in whatever industry, say that you'll be a mentor for a veteran who's interested in that industry, because without your help, it's just kind of, you know, you're grasping at straws. You don't know what to do. So I think that that's super important when you get out, try to find a mentor in whatever field. I get messages on LinkedIn. I get messages on Instagram from vets who want to be actors and they say, Hey, you know, I don't know if you have the time to help me. Hell yes. I have the time to help you. You're a vet. You're a brother or sister of mine who wants to go into this industry If I don't help you, if I don't guide you, you're going to spend a bunch of time and money just, how do I do this? Yes, I'm here to help you. And most people will help if you just ask. Just humble yourself and ask. That's a great point because I think that's where a lot of people get lost in general is that they feel afraid to let somebody know, even if they already are employed or they're unemployed at the moment, they're looking for an occupation or their next occupation. They, they feel like they don't want to let people know that I'm unemployed right now, you know, or like in your case, what you're talking about, you're transitioning, uh, transitioning either out of the military or transitioning to a new role or a new job. Um, those, that's when you'll know that you actually can help is because somebody tells you they, would like for you to help. You won't know that if they don't say it. Absolutely. I I totally get it. And, And there's a few places that I've spoke at for veterans, for female veterans, especially, they're not necessarily interested in entertainment, which is smart. Don't get interested in entertainment. You'll just be broke. And they'll tell you no all the time. So (laughs) they're not necessarily interested in that field. But vets tend to lack self-esteem. They're like, oh, but I really can't bring this to the table. I don't have this experience. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. From the time that you go in, and pardon my pardon my French, but we have a vet office uh, yeah. audience, so it's fine. Um, you know, from the time that we go in, we have leadership instilled in us. So you have so much to offer a civilian employee, you an employer. You just have to figure out how to market yourself effectively. And that's another thing that vets are horrible at. Oh, I don't want to be narcissistic. I don't want to be this. I don't want to be that you have a skill that you could offer an employer to make their lives easier. Don't make it about you. Make it about the package and the skills that you bring and how you are a solution to their problem. Absolutely. 
That's it right there. How can find a way that you can get into the organization? I've even said about even being a contractor or intern or some way that you can get in to put your foot in the door. And then you can start identifying what you just mentioned, those ways in which you can go, oh, my God, okay, my background's in logistics. I see they're having a problem over here. They don't understand their processes are broke. I can see that I had this same thing that I experienced within the military. We had applied it this way. This is my opportunity now to shine and let them know how I can add value to that organization. But if you're not going to do that unless you're wired to constantly be looking, like you said, of how you're going to add value to that organization. Absolutely. I think it's just a continuation of service. Nobody joined the military and said, Hey, I'm going to go be Rambo. You know, we signed on the line and say, I'm going to go and serve my country. So when you get out, it's the same thing. You're just serving a different, a different entity or different, different master. I don't know. It's not the best term, but it's all right. It's service, you know, which that's what we do. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, when you join the military, though, you don't think about how I can add value to being an infantryman or, you know, whatever the case <laughs> may be. You know what I mean? Seriously, though. I mean, you just go down there. True. You just So when you get out, it's a, it's a little foreign to you because you're not used to having to do that. You think there's a piece of paper um, that's actually going to do that for you. The transition assistance program tells you just put it all in one page, you know, that every, that's all you need. And that's all employers want to see. All of that is wrong. I'm here to tell you what you have to do is. You know, start understanding what people are going to be seeking from you and how you fit their organization. How is it that your Navy experience in logistics is actually going to apply to DHL or to FedEx or whatever the case may be? Because I don't see it right now. Well, that's where you can start sharing. Well, it's the same processes. This is what we do. We speak the same language. We use this type of equipment. You know, we, you know, whatever the case. And then it's really interesting. Most of the time, the hiring managers or uh, HR people will be like, oh, really? I didn't. I didn't know that. I thought you guys just, I just thought you shot bullets and stuff downrange to kill bad guys. Oh, exactly. And I always tell vets, if you're getting out, you need to completely remove all military terminology from your resume and you need to make it civilianized. Okay. How can I sell the skills I have in the military to a civilian career? Because sometimes if you get caught too caught up and this was my MOS and these are my NECs, civilian employers are like, what, how does this help me? How does this apply to me? And as much as we all love the awards that we got in the military, no one cares. It doesn't go on a resume unless you're a medal of honor recipient. Generally, they just don't care. I'm an expert marksman. Okay. But does your job have anything to do with firearms? If not, that's just kind of, you know, narcissism, like, oh, look, I've got all these things. That's nice. And in the military, we go, hey, great job. But if you want to work and function in the civilian world and you want to do well, it's their world now. So we just have to mold our resumes, mold our experience so that they see us as an asset. Because let's be real, the media portrays vets as mm, not sure if you want to hire them. A lot of them have PTS. A lot of them might, you know, go yeah. off and be crazy. So we have all this negative media attention kind of telling our story. And I don't want to be a part of that. I only want to contribute to a positive narrative about vets because the media has taken over the other side. So I don't, I don't need to contribute to, to that negativity. I need to bring in stories about vets in the community who are leaders, who are businessmen, who are coaches, who are teachers, who are parents. Yeah, love it. I mean, actually, you think about all uh, the television shows that in some way, shape, or form involve reality, as they call it, reality TV. They end up trying to portray the individual who um, had a difficult life. You know, they grew up in this bad situation or whatever the case. Listen, I just want to hear them sing. That's all I want to do. You know, that's what they're coming to the show for. And so that's the same type of thing. Like you said, if you start building these perceptions and I'm supposed to feel a particular way about you, well, you're coming here to sing. So that's what I'm going to, I should be judging you on that merit alone. And I feel bad about the other situation, but the same token, if uh, the media is constantly looking at the negatives, like you're talking about, and that's how they're going to start portraying veterans, then it's going to start getting to the point where unfortunately our, our veteran brothers and sisters who came back from Vietnam uh, and Scott, you, you run into the same situation over in the UK where they start having these negative perceptions that actually take over. And it's the, it's the predominant perception as opposed to something that's only a 5%, 10% of all uh, veterans that are out there. Jennifer, have you experienced any negative stereotyping or anything like that based on your military service and, oh, and acting or anything like that? Ab- absolutely. Really? 
Absolutely. And that is why it is so now have there been offices and directors and producers who are amazing and welcome the experience? Yes. Have there also been people who say, well, I have this, you know, preconceived notion of what a vet is and I don't really know if I want to deal with that. Absolutely. That's why it is so imperative that veterans work in the entertainment space, whether it's directors, writers, producers. I always tell offices, you know, when somebody is transgender or somebody is a little person or somebody is disabled, you want to have somebody in the writing room to accurately portray their experiences. You don't want to have somebody who has no idea just writing a story for them because it's kind of rude and it's kind of out of touch. How would you know what it's like to be ABC? For some reason, that same courtesy is not extended towards service members or veterans as much as it should be. It's like, oh, we're going to tell this war story and it's about vets and it's about PTS and it's about MST. Okay, great. Could veterans have, could we have a voice in the telling of our own story? That's super important too. And one of my favorite characters on TV right now, so Ed O'Neill is on Modern Family. His character is a Navy vet. And he's a normal person. He's a normal person. Sometimes they'll talk about his time in the service, but he doesn't have PTSD. He's not anxiety riddled. He's not all of these things. Now, are there people in our community, our brothers and sisters who need help? Yes. I was one of those people at one time. I was not doing well. Is it important to take care of those people? Yes. But it's also important not to allow other people to dictate our narrative and say they're all like this, they're all like that. Invite us in the writing room. Invite us on set. You don't have to cast a vet. But how about you have a few audition? There are a lot of talented veterans in this space who have been actors for years and years and years. So why not just allow us? At the end of the day, the best actor is going to get the role. Yeah. But could we be allowed to take part in that? You're, after all, you're telling our story. It would never be tolerated for another group in Hollywood. But for some reason, it's still tolerated in the veteran space to some extent. I, I got to believe there are even veterans out there that um, not everybody will do things for free, but I got to believe in some cases there are veterans out there that just would like to have the story told real and correct. Mm -hmm. And so they might be more than willing to come on and provide advice just for the sake of let's get this right. Like like you were saying about the set with Hawaii Five O is so important for you to just get it right. You yes. Know? And, and there are veterans who say, you know, I would work as a tech advisor for free. And I always say, guys, I get that. I understand that. But then we are feeding into, oh, well, the vets aren't, we don't really have to pay them. Like they're not really worth being paid. Oh, so I point. always advocate that, you know, when I talk to directors or producers and I have that sort of pull, um, I worked on an HBO show as a technical advisor. And I always said, these are the people we have to bring in. And this is the value that they bring. Now you are free not to hire anybody, not to bring anybody in. You will get flayed on social media. You will get flayed by military and vets because you are not, you're in, you're telling our story and you're in our world. But there's no attention to detail. There's no, you know, you have guys with covers on the flight line. You have ribbons that are all crazy. You can save yourself a lot of heartbreak and a lot of heartache by just bringing somebody in. It's they're worth the investment 10 times over. Yeah, they're I, worth the small investment. I tune out as soon as I start seeing that you, you lose me. You know, it could be 15 minutes in the television show and I'm like, OK, I'm done. You know, you, you've already just totally lost me. Well, and I, I want to tell a story with anonymity here. So there's a show that's coming up and there's a veteran on the show with a, with a disability in the show. So they brought someone on to work with this actor, what it's like to have a disability, which is great. Yeah. That's what you want. But then there were some things that happened in the show that are clearly kind of the military watching the show, and I'm not going to say exactly what it is because then people will be able to pinpoint it. But military watching the show is like, ooh, what is going on there? And it's because they relied on the veteran with a disability to oversee everything. That's not what he was brought in for. He was brought in for to talk to this actor about what it's like living with a disability, what it's like doing this day to day activity, how he feels. So to say, well, we got this one vet on set, like we're good to go. No, that vet was brought on for one specific thing. So a veteran cannot be there for accuracy, wardrobe, uniforms, you know, tech advising. You can't have one veteran on the set for everything. And that's why Hawaii Five O worked out so so well, because you have me, you have the tech advisor who's an Air Force guy, because I'm playing Air Force. You have the tech advisor who's a SEAL. I believe they had two SEALs who were tech advisors. Wow. And you have people who are covering every aspect of it, which is why it was seamless. But if you just say, well, we hired this one vet and here's the quota and there's still going to be problems. You know, if you're going to do something, you got to do it right. 
Yeah, I, I agree. We're not all not all that's are created equal. I say that a lot. I, I'm not the guy you want to come to for uniformity on a class A uniform. I avoided that as much as possible. I don't even know what it's supposed to look like. But that but is shooting, such a, yes. That's such a strength that you know, like, hey, I can't cover all this. And to be fair, the vet that they brought in did not say he could cover all this. It was just kind of like the civilian thought process of, oh, he's good to go. But like you said, you know, if you hand me some firearm that I've never shot before, uh, I'm probably not going to be your tech expert for that. You know, you want to give me an M16, an M4, a Glock, fine. But if it's something that infantry uses or you guys, I, I have no idea. And that's okay to say, guys, I'm not your girl. I'm not your guy. I don't have any idea. But this is great advice of what we're talking about here just for anything. I mean, anything you do oh, yeah. in life, you got to be able to call out your weaknesses and recognize them and go ahead and say it. Because the last thing you want to do is make others feel like you might know it. And then you start going down that lie further and further. And then you're going to get exposed. It's only a matter of time. Not a good you thing. You just look silly. You look yeah. silly and everybody looks silly. Just say, guys, I don't know. And, and that's fine. I, I don't know, but I could find out for you. Right. That's what I say when I'm faced with something I don't know. That's a great answer. So I want to jump, though, because uh, you went and got a master's in administration of justice. <laughs> and I understand now you're trying to open up or you're starting to open up a private investigation. Now, did this come from your time in the military of, you know, the military with things like we talked about, like military sexual trauma, investigations and all this? Or where did this how did this kind of come in? Because it doesn't fit the acting side of it really it, and it, oh it kind, it oh, kind does. of does okay yeah right. it's kind of just an amalgamation of experiences so being in the military and seeing ncis bungle up a couple of sexual assault cases <laughs> um you know that's I one bet that drove you crazy yeah oh my gosh uh yeah um, you know, inter seeing NCIS interview witnesses and it not being done appropriately. And granted, this was like two people. This is not indicative of all NCIS. Right. Um, you know, being the mother to four children and I've raised two teenagers and I'm in the process of raising my third teenager. Nothing gets past me. I'm the world's nosiest person. Um, being in the military and having attention to detail. Um, you know, all of these things kind of coming together. It, it was like, I just want to do this. I had moved out to Los Angeles to join LAPD. I did not move out to Los Angeles to be an actor. Oh, really? I ended up, yeah. So I ended up getting injured in the academy. I got hired. I was in the pre-academy for eight months. I was in the academy for four months. I was in the hiring process for a year and a half. I got hired. I went to the academy and, you know, it didn't work out. I got injured. And so I left and I said, I really, at the time, I really wanted to be a detective in either homicides or sex crimes. And I said, how can I kind of make this a reality in the civilian side? So I went to PI school in 2014 and I've been working towards accumulating my hours for my license. You have to have 6,000 hours. So I recently got my license. I'm in the process of, uh, of opening my own company right now. And, you know, that's something that is going to serve me because who knows? I could get, God forbid, I could get in a car accident tomorrow, smash up my face, and I can't be an actor anymore unless I want to be, you know, the scarred person in every single show. But how many shows have that? So I always have a backup to a backup to a backup. And... I just like the ability to help people and not be, I mean, police officers and detectives, they have a lot of parameters that they have to have to follow. Private investigators, we don't have as many. Are there rules? Yes. Are there ethics? Yes. Are there things we cannot do? Yes. But we are not, um, it's not like being a police officer where there's only certain things that we can do and that's it. So I really, really enjoy it. And it's something that has no expiration date. Being an actress as a, as a female Unfortunately, it has an expiration date. There's going to get to be a point where it's like I book less and less and less, and then maybe I won't book anymore. Um, so you see shows where it's like a silver fox dad with a younger woman. We need to get rid of that because there's no, there's like hardly any roles for women over 50. And that's why is that sort of casting that happens. Yeah. So I realized that this has a shelf life and I wanted to start my next career before ending this one because, because I can, why not? You know, and acting figures into it because you're talking to people, you're getting information from people. You are, you know, there's so many, I read people for a living every day as an actor. So as an investigator, that is so beneficial. I know when somebody's lying. I know when somebody's thinking, I know when somebody's recalling. And it's also kind of crazy when I'm acting because if it's bad acting, then it's really super distracting. Like, wait, you're looking up, you should be looking down you should be looking to the side. It doesn't ring true. So, yeah, it's just an amalgamation of things that have led to this. No. Wow. I didn't realize uh, until you started painting it that way, but I can totally see how that picture fits in. And 
you know, and like you said, starting to read people, uh, facial expressions, non-verbal uh, communication and everything. Oh, man, it's so important. Even like we were talking about in the transition of the whole job process and stuff, because you're going to be sizing them up as much as they're sizing you. So understand your non-verbal communications, understand their non-verbal communications. You're right. All these things definitely fit within. So I want to kind of jump to into um, something that I think most veterans, if they're making the transition, need to do, and that's. Uh, keep that sense of service, uh, keep that ability to stay tied into the network and to connect with other veterans and stuff. And I know that's something that you do a lot in uh, community service. You did uh, Uganda and going over and teaching and educating uh, small children over there and uh, like 150 kids and stuff and spent some some time out in kind of the rough. And then you do pin up for vets as well and in, in, uh, trying to give back in that way. But, you know, for us, it's one of the things that we really preach is to stay connected, find ways to get back into the community, find ways to give back to others in some ways, like you mentioned, helping them get into the industry, whatever that might be, do that because that's part of us. It's in our uh, DNA. Absolutely. And so many veterans leave the service, myself included, and there's this huge hole because you spend your career giving back to the greater good, to the mission, to accomplishing things. You're a team, you're not an individual. So when you get out, so many veterans struggle because they're like, I don't, I don't know how to navigate this. I don't know how this works. I feel like I'm not whole. Well, of course you're not whole. You spent all this time in the military and the military kind of plugged that hole and you had the camaraderie and you had, you know, the greater mission in your head with everything that you did. So I always tell veterans, Join the American Legion, join the VFW, join Team Red, White, and Blue, join Team Rubicon. I'm a member of Pinups for Vets. I'm a proud ambassador. We dress up as World War II era pinup girls, very colorful, but very modest. We visit veterans in nursing homes, wounded warrior detachments, hospitals. We want to ensure that no veteran ever feels like their service is unappreciated or has, has you know, has not been recognized. So until you fill that hole with some sort of volunteer work, or camaraderie, you will never be whole again. And I see so many veterans struggle with that and say, well, you know, what, what good could I do volunteering? You can do a world of good. I deliver meals for the senior center. I volunteer at the vet center. You know, I go to Uganda every 18 months to see the kids there. I sponsor a couple of kids so they can go to school there. You have the power to change the world. Don't underestimate yourself. Good stuff. I mean, especially for those veterans who have seen what war can do and what um, other countries are going through outside of America and or UK or Australia or whatever the case may be. I mean, you start getting into second, third world countries and stuff, and there's a lot of differences between what we think is really bad or our bad day. Uh, bad days are, are really bad in some environments. So being able, like you said, to give back. But there's a lot of things that you could do, like you mentioned as well, right here in the U.S. that you can do to uh, on a daily basis or, you know, whenever your time uh, permits. Find uh, To me, I always tell people when they're looking for their passion or purpose, it may not be in your job. That's a holy grail. If you can find something you absolutely love to do and get paid for it, that's great. But if nothing else, find some way to fulfill that passion or purpose as a hobby or as something that you do as a community service or something of that nature. Like you said, it'll fulfill you. It'll make you whole again. Absolutely. That is so important. And it's so undervalued as a society. Like, oh, I don't have that much time or I don't have that many skills. If you can help one person, it's absolutely worth it. You may only have an hour a week. Okay. That's an hour that maybe people in a nursing home are, are sitting by themselves. That's an hour that maybe a, you know, a child after school is struggling and doesn't have a mentor. Your hour could mean so much to somebody, or it could mean an hour of playing Candy Crush on your phone. We talk about this all the time. Our kind of slogan, our motto here is real people, real talk. And, and one of the things that we talk about amongst us hosts is if we can do something by inviting folks like you on the show that can share a message, then it impacts one person to make an action, a positive action, or to make a, a change in their life or into somebody else's, or they introduce this show that changes that person after they listen to it, then we did what we wanted to do. And, and that's our way of giving back is, is trying to do something like that. Jennifer, I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing everything that you did. Um, it's always really cool to see veterans out there leading the way like you're doing, especially in the industry that you're in, because I think it's really important that we start start setting the positive role model like you're talking about in the media, because that's where everybody who's not military is looking to get their information, unfortunately. Absolutely. Yeah. I just want to thank you guys for not only having me, but a 
accommodating my schedule change because we had a flood in, in my house and so things were a little crazy. So I appreciate your time and, and I appreciate you accommodating me so much. Thank you. Absolutely.